Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. The winter sun setting on Monday the 8th of July 1872 and inside a newly built iron sanatorium at Long Gully, two miles northwest of Sandhurst, now known as Bendigo, six-year-old Matilda James has just died of smallpox. She's the third victim of the plague, which in the past few days has also put two of her little siblings into quickly dug and disinfected graves. The smallpox has yet more of the James children in its grip. Also afflicted, the child of a family they've been staying with and a neighbourhood woman who's been nursing them. Amid the understandable panic, the local health officer has resigned his duties of care to these sufferers because his other Bendigo patients are terrified he'll infect them. So, Victoria's chief medical officer has just appointed an acting health officer to the district. This new man arrives at the sanatorium at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. There's much to do and not a moment to spare. He has to assess the pustules upon the faces of the poor inmates to have an idea of how their smallpox is progressing and what their chances are of pulling through. He has to ensure that their residences are destroyed and burned, along with all their clothes, bedding and furniture. He has to secure the services of a cook, handyman and nurses for the asylum. He has to monitor the population of Long Gully for smallpox symptoms and ensure as many people as possible are vaccinated or revaccinated. Do all of this and he might stop the pestilence in its tracks. He might save Sandhurst from a severe outbreak and thus he might also prevent a widespread visitation of plague on the colony of Victoria. It's a tall order, but the man is equal to this challenge. 
After all, he literally wrote the book about smallpox. Lately, this man has spent a year away from the colony, so his very recent return from the South Seas is like a gift from God. Much now rests squarely upon his shoulders, the shoulders of Dr. James Patrick Murray. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the third and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's Slave Ship Massacre. Dr. James Patrick Murray's conscience wasn't troubled by the massacre of at least 70 kidnapped South Sea Islander men aboard the brig Carl on or about the 13th of September 1871. After the dead and wounded had been tossed into the sea, the doctor had seen to it that the surviving captive Polynesians aboard the ship cleaned out its blood-spattered hold. Of course, with so many killed, the white men had lost part of the small fortune they intended to make at the slave market back in Fiji. So, as Carl sailed southwest from the scene of the crime, Dr. Murray tried to induce the crew and partners to top up their cargo by embarking on a fresh round of kidnapping. Sanity prevailed for the moment, and no one would be a party to it. Harry Mount, one of the business partners aboard, who by some accounts had opposed Dr. Murray's brutal excesses, was supposed to have said, quote, I've had enough of the bloody work. Nevertheless, Dr. Murray repeatedly pressed the idea, even at one stage trying to use the so-called friendly natives aboard to catch more men. It all failed. Carl stopped at the Seven Islands where a white man was in residence. Dr. Murray went ashore for a few days and returned with a supply of whitewash. The captive islanders aboard Carl were ordered to scour the hold with this obliterating solution. Now, all traces of blood and gore were gone. But they couldn't do anything about the bullet holes in the woodwork down there. Nor could lime and water repair the drill holes in the bulkhead through which revolvers and rifles had poured fire onto dozens of defenceless men from Bougainville. And no amount of whitewash could disinfect the poisonous atmosphere aboard the ship. Harry Mount, William Morris and Raby Wilson, business partners who'd sailed on Carl planning to start a South Seas cotton plantation, were aligned against Dr Murray. So much so that Mr Morris and Mr Mount were no longer on speaking terms with the man. But the fourth partner, William Scott, along with Carl's captain and crew, was still on the doctor's side. That was even though his mind appeared to be slipping. According to Mr Wilson, as Carl sailed towards the island of Epi, the doctor started talking loudly to himself. Mr Wilson was to claim, quote, He would rise out of his sleep, seize his revolver and sabre, crying out, Where is that damned mount? But Dr Murray might not have to shoot his perceived enemy. That was because Mr Mount was sick and getting sicker. Of course, only one man aboard the ship was qualified to help. Using Mr Wilson as his go-between, Mr Mount requested medicine from Dr Murray. And this was supplied. But soon the ailing man had gone from bad to worse. Harry Mount began to convulse violently suffering stomach spasms so severe they caused him to roll from his bunk and crash to the floor. Mr. Wilson was horrified. He was certain that Dr. Murray's medicine was actually poison. Even the partner, Mr. Scott, who nominally was in the doctor's camp, tried to help Mr. Mount. Mr. Wilson would say, quote, Yet Murray looked on with the coldest indifference, never offering to do anything for him. Harry Mount was sick with fits for two days. 
Mr. Morris and Mr. Wilson did their best to care for him, and this included administering chlorodyne so the man could sleep. Mr. Mount was thus unconscious when, as they neared Epi, the Royal Navy's man-of-war Rosario came up on Carl. This vessel signalled Carl to heave to. But crusading anti-slaver Captain George Palmer, who we heard about in Part 2, was no longer in command of Rosario. The man-of-war was now under the command of the less zealous captain, Albert Markham. He sent an officer aboard Carl to do a routine inspection. The captive islanders, who numbered between 70 and 80, were up on the deck. In the presence of the officer from the Rosario, they were allowed to jump into the sea to wash. This impressed him that none seemed to be being held against their will. Though, it should be noted, we have no idea what the islander men had been told would happen if they tried to speak up. After all, these captives had witnessed what happened to those who resisted. Carl's hatches had been left open, and Rosario's officer gave the hold a cursory look. Everything down there appeared sparkling clean. None of the white men aboard gave any impression that anything was amiss. Of course, Mr. Mount couldn't speak because he was in and out of consciousness. Mr. Wilson would claim that he and Mr. Morris had stayed silent because, quote, Mr. Mount had always been our spokesman and we did not know what to do. Besides, had we given Murray or the crew up, Mr. Scott would have suffered with them. Mr. Mount and Mr. Morris would later jointly say in a statement that Dr. Murray had declared his intention to remain on the island of Epi. They believed the natives and the climate there would provide God's retribution. Given the all clear by Rosario, Carl sailed on. As they approached Epi, Dr. Murray gave the captives a few English lessons. This was so when they got to Levuka, capital of Fiji, they could tell the consul there they were good. They were instructed by Dr. Murray to hold up three fingers and tell the consul they'd been contracted for three yams which meant three years. This was supposedly to confirm that their labour had been voluntarily recruited. Yet, of course, the consul Edward March might have noticed that Carl had no interpreter on board, as was required by law to ensure that islanders understood any agreement they entered into. Carl reached Epi on the 18th of November, 1871. This was where Dr Murray had bought land on the way out. He and Mr. Scott went ashore, taking all the tools, most of the supplies, and about a dozen or so of the Bougainville men who'd not been slaughtered. Sailor George Heath was to characterise this as Dr. Murray ensuring that these islanders weren't able to tell anyone what had happened to their countrymen. On Epi, Mr. Heath would say, they'd work and stay silent, or Dr. Murray would kill them. Carl sailed on to Levuka. It would take two weeks. Mr. Wilson would say they barely had enough provisions and that he, Mr. Morris and the recovering Mr. Mount were looked upon with suspicion by the crew. Reaching Fiji on the 4th of December, the trio of business partners were close to destitute. All their money had been tied up with Dr. Murray. As we heard in part two, they'd taken six horses on board Carl from Melbourne. One had died on the voyage to Fiji and the other five were so weak they'd been left in Levuka with Dr. Murray's agent. Now Monsieur's Mount, Morris and Wilson used these animals as security against an advance that allowed them steerage passage back to Sydney. Mr Wilson said they, quote, returned beggars to Australia. There, they would go their separate ways, say nothing of what had happened and try to forget. 
In Levuka on the 7th of December, Carl's captain Joseph Armstrong and his first mate Charles Dowden sold their human cargo. According to Consul Edward March, who passed the labour as legitimately procured, 59 men were sold at £10 a head. Most of the ship's crew now took their bonuses and left. But at Dr Murray's direction, Captain Armstrong was heading back out on another slave run. To this end, he hired a new crew, and he'd also take with him a young Australian passenger named Archibald Watson. On the 22nd of December, they sailed from Levuka on what became known as the Second Voyage. A week later, they picked up Dr Murray from Epi. What happened to those dozen or so Bougainville men? This was never revealed or deemed of any importance. On leaving Epi, Carl went to the island of St Bartholomew, arriving there on the 16th of January. Canoes came out to the ship, and islanders came aboard to trade. The whole hideous kidnapping business began all over again. As Dr Murray would say, quote, When the trade was completed, the eight or ten natives on board were seized by the captain and crew of the brig. Dr Murray described how the islanders were subdued violently and forced into the hold. Carl left St Bartholomew and sailed to Espirito Santo and islands in the Duff and Kingsmill groups. On three occasions at the Vendetta Group, Dr Murray said, islanders were induced on board to trade and were captured. At least 15 were taken there, and at least 15 more were kidnapped in the Marshall and Caroline groups. During one of these attacks, Dr Murray said, a crew member named James Clancy was in a canoe when he was approached by three islanders. Fearing for his safety, he opened fire with his revolver, shooting two of the men. Dr Murray would say, quote, One of the wounded men was just expiring when he was got on board the brig, and he was thrown overboard. The life of the other wounded man was saved. A crew member named John Bennett kept a log comprising some 25 pages that provided a chronicle of these horrors. A week after the first 10 men were kidnapped, Mr Bennett described how one got away, quote, at night in the first watch, one of the stolen blacks slipped over the rail. Whether he fetched the land or was drowned, I don't know. The entry on the 4th of February read, Got underway and went closer inshore. This day stole 12 natives, 4 women and 8 men. One woman came off to give them warning and she got nailed. What she got nailed meant wasn't explained. Elsewhere, Mr Bennett noted a crew member hitting an islander in the head with a tomahawk, Mr Clancy firing on islanders who jumped off the deck, and the shooting of that man who was then dumped overboard. Carl's final stop on its outward northwestern journey was a little islet called San Francisco off New Island in what's now Papua New Guinea. Over the next two days, large numbers of Papuans came out in canoes. Some hoped to trade, but others were simply curious to visit with the white men. The crew of Carl waved them closer, showing them coloured material and fancy goods. Then, as they had on the first voyage, they used heavy lumps of pig iron and a small roped cannon to smash the men's canoes. All up, they caught 60 islanders. How many people died during these attacks wasn't established, but there's good reason to believe it was a substantial number. Dr Murray would say, quote, The canoes were large ones and contained sometimes 10 men each, some of the natives who were not picked up were drowned. On the return trip to Levuka, things started to turn ominous for the Carl's owner. John Bennett's log would note that Dr Murray was quite deranged. 
Archibald Watson's diary said the same thing, quote, Doctor in a terrible state, lying amongst the natives whom he got to drench him with buckets of salt water, mind wandering very much. During this portion of the voyage, Dr. Murray was said to have tried to kill himself by jumping overboard. He also took poison and tried to shoot himself. But he'd say none of that was true. He said that Captain Armstrong and the crew had tried to kill him. Quote, I had good reason for jumping overboard. My life was attempted. The attempt appeared to have been made with the consent of the captain. I never took poison. I believe poison had been given to me. By the time Carl reached Lavuka, Dr. Murray was nearly done for. He was to say, quote, I was lying in a state almost next to death at the time. I never attempted to shoot myself. I never dreamt of doing such a thing. My life was attempted several times at sea. By a systematic cruelty, I was reduced almost to death's door. When Carl reached Lavuka around the first week of May, Dr. Murray had to be carried ashore. Yet he wasn't to die. Far from it. While still recovering, Dr. James Patrick Murray had an urgent need to get something off his chest. So he summoned the British consul, Edward March. About a month later, Dr. James Patrick Murray was back in the colony of Victoria and again practicing medicine at Sandhurst. It's not known whether he was there with his wife Caroline. They already had an infant son and daughter, and Caroline would give birth to another boy that year. Even so, Dr. Murray's family didn't seem to loom large in his considerations. At the start of July, the smallpox outbreak was detected at Long Gully. The disease had been brought to the colony by the James family, who'd recently emigrated from California via New Zealand and who'd not been subjected to quarantine in Melbourne. As we heard in part one, in 1869, Dr. Murray had published his 47-page booklet entitled Smallpox, Chickenpox and Vaccination, an essay. It's very likely there was no one in the colony who could claim as much expertise in the subject. But as we also heard in part one, Dr. Murray's confidence in his medical infallibility was sometimes very misplaced. Upon learning of the smallpox outbreak, he offered his services to Victoria's chief medical officer, Dr. William McRae. But with Sandhurst's health officer, Dr. John Cruikshank, in charge, Dr. Murray's services weren't required. The town's mayor and council acted quickly to order the building of that temporary sanatorium. Yet Dr. Cruikshank almost immediately resigned his position. The reason? His private patients were terrified if he attended the asylum, he risked infecting them with smallpox. It wouldn't do for a doctor to travel between the sanatorium and the townsfolk. So Dr. McRae summoned Dr. Murray to take over. He arrived at the sanatorium at 5pm on Monday the 8th of July to find that little Matilda James had become the third child from the infected family to die of the smallpox. Dr. Murray believed the other James children had a good chance of survival. But the long gully woman who'd been trying to care for them all, a Mrs. Robertson, was delirious and in a very bad way indeed. Dr. Murray immediately set about his many tasks to ensure that no one else fell victim to the plague. Just two days later, Melbourne's Herald ran a strange story that was literally headlined, A Strange Story. Here's how it began. Quote, the following remarkable statement, which will interest many Melbourne readers, is made by the Fiji correspondent of the Southern Cross. The Daily Southern Cross was an Auckland newspaper. 
Its Fiji correspondence report had appeared in the 11th of June issue and taken the intervening month to reach Australia so it could be reprinted not only in the Herald but in other colonial papers. It read, The Brig Carl of Melbourne, with upwards of 100 labourers on board, came into port earlier than was anticipated, being short of provisions, also having the charterer or owner, Dr Murray, on board very ill. By putting labourers in inverted commas, the reporter made it clear that Carl was a slave ship. It was also clear that Dr Murray owned the vessel. The report said he was, quote, well known in Melbourne and other districts in the colony of Victoria. The article said his illness was a mystery, though seemingly the result of his long stay on Epi among the cannibals. Quote, Dr Murray himself is in a hopeless state of insanity, his mind a perfect wreck which has unquestionably been induced from the horrible scenes he has experienced. The article continued, His present condition is deplorable in the extreme, for, in addition to his loss of mind, his health is impaired forever. Blood in quantities gushes from the mouth and nostrils of this confirmed lunatic, and his extreme emaciation presents a pitiable spectacle of wretchedness seldom witnessed. It was indeed a strange story. Yet, what wasn't reprinted was another article from that very same issue of the Daily Southern Cross. And this one read, quote, The appearance of the Cossack, Captain Gordon Douglas, in Fijian waters, expressly charged to look sharply after the labour traders, has already resulted in seizures of men and vessels. The Carl, a brig of 100 tonnes burden, was seized on the 17th of May on a charge of being engaged in the slave trade. The article said the entire crew of Carl had been arrested and taken aboard Cossack to take their trial before a naval court as soon as possible. Clearly, putting these two articles together created a very different picture for readers of the Daily Southern Cross. However, all readers of the Melbourne Herald and other Australian colonial newspapers would have known at that time was that the estimable Dr Murray had run into some bad health in Fiji but had obviously made such a rapid and remarkable recovery from his insanity that he was now entrusted with rescuing Sandhurst from smallpox. By the time this strange story did appear, the naval court on the Cossack in Fiji had already been convened and the charges heard. Those charges? Murder and assault on the high seas. All the crew members of Carl who'd been arrested had been remanded so they could be transferred to Australia. From the 13th of July, proceedings began at the Water Police Court in Sydney against these men. Captain Armstrong and First Mate Charles Dowden were charged with the murder of an Islander man, name unknown. Men of the second voyage, Solomon McCarthy, William Turner, August Sheargott, Thomas Shields, George Woods, James Clancy and John Bennett were on their way from Fiji to also face court in Sydney. They were to be charged with assault on the high seas. James Clancy would also later face a murder charge. But the evidence that would be heard in these cases pointed to far worse crimes of almost unimaginable magnitude. As Sydney's The Evening News reported, quote, The case is invested with considerable interest inasmuch as it has been confidently stated that no less than 70 murders of this kind have taken place in the Pacific. Yet legal proceedings in Sydney would be held up for weeks because the principal material witness was not able to attend. New South Wales authorities sent a telegram requesting his urgent presence to their Victorian counterparts. 
The reply? He couldn't be spared just at the moment. That was because Dr James Patrick Murray was doing urgent, life-saving work in Sandhurst. Back after he'd reached Levuka, deathly sick, frothing blood from the nose and mouth, seemingly hopelessly and forever insane, Dr Murray had been well enough and had sufficient presence of mind to make his confession to Consul Edward March. He told everything, or at least his version of everything, about the first and second voyages of Carl. Doing so, he said piously, quote, for the honour of God. Far more probable was that Dr. Murray was using the exact same tactic he had back in 1866 after he deserted Duncan McIntyre's Leichhardt recovery expedition to its fate. Dr. Murray, as we'd say these days, was again trying to get ahead of the story. But if he was going to confess, it was going to be on one condition. That condition? Immunity. Incredibly, Consul Edward March agreed to this, even though it wasn't legally clear he had the authority to do so. After Dr Murray told his version of events, the Carl and its crew were seized by the men of Cossack. First mate from the first voyage, Charles Dowden, was apprehended on a French boat. At the naval court aboard Cossack, Dr Murray gave his testimony. The men were remanded and were due to be sent to Sydney. But before this could happen, James Clancy escaped the Cossack. He was recaptured and would be transferred later. But Archibald Watson, that young passenger on the second voyage of the Carl, though charged with murder, was allowed free on a large bail. He promptly fled Fiji and was not recaptured. Archibald Watson was to go to Europe, study medicine and return to Australia in 1885 to become our leading professor of anatomy, all seemingly forgotten and forgiven. Back in May 1872, while all the available prisoners were being sent to Sydney in custody, Dr Murray was free to do as he pleased until needed in Sydney court. Consul March's guarantee, dated the 23rd of May, certified that Dr Murray had turned Queen's evidence. He was untouchable, at least in the colony of New South Wales. His situation in Victoria was less clear, but authorities in Victoria had no idea of the crimes in which he was implicated. All they knew was that he was back in Victoria and tirelessly working to contain the smallpox outbreak. Not that Dr Murray was above criticism. Back in part one, we heard how in 1860, in his very first overture to the Royal Society, Dr Murray had said he wanted to join the Birkenwills exploration efforts despite the danger and hardship because he was, quote, animated by an honourable desire for fame. And this still appeared to be a major motivation. So rather than remain in the smallpox sanatorium and write official reports that his cabman could convey to the telegraph office, Dr Murray regularly walked there himself. These updates to Dr McRae would be published in the Victorian newspapers. While there was definite public interest in knowing the condition of the patients and whether there'd been any further outbreaks, Dr Murray was criticised by at least two correspondents to the Bendigo Advertiser. They said he risked sowing the seeds of the very contagion he was trying to contain. Dr Murray was said to believe he was unable to carry the smallpox. While it's likely he was immune, either via vaccination or having survived the disease, he was constantly in contact with sufferers whose secretions could infect others. A fleck of scab or pus on his clothing might have spread the disease. 
an abundance of caution would have dictated that he didn't take such risks. Yet there he was, out and about. On the 19th of July, when the outbreak was far from over, Dr Murray paid a visit to the Sandhurst Benevolent Asylum and Industrial School, where the area's poor children were cared for and educated. There was no reason for this, nor for his lengthy tour of the place. The next day, he wrote a long letter to the Australasian newspaper expressing his satisfaction with the facility. He'd been especially struck by how clean the air inside was. At first he thought it was some sort of new ventilation system. Quote, But the real cause became quickly apparent. Cleanliness carried to absolute perfection. Here lay the secret. Walls white as snow from careful and repeated liming. Dr Murray really was a fan of the whitewash. Fortunately, he didn't spread smallpox and neither did anyone else. The other James children lived and so did Mrs Robertson. By the end of July, the outbreak was all but over. The timing was extraordinary. In Victoria, Dr Murray was being lauded as something of a hero for saving Sandhurst and perhaps the entire colony from a serious outbreak of smallpox. But in New South Wales, Dr Murray was overnight reviled as the perpetrator of a massacre who was set to escape justice by turning Queen's evidence. While he was yet to appear in court in Sydney because he was still at the Sandhurst Sanatorium, his testimony from the Cossack Naval Court was read during remand proceedings, and it was reprinted in the Empire newspaper on the 31st of July in a big article that was headlined, Wholesale Kidnapping and Murders in the Pacific. What readers learned now was the detail of how Polynesians had been captured violently how at least 70 men had been shot and dumped, dead and alive, into the sea off Bougainville in September 1871. They also learned that on a second labour cruise, another native man had been fatally shot and tossed overboard. Dr Murray's testimony had made it seem that many of these events just happened. The men acted spontaneously and in unison, with no one giving orders. The fate of the Bougainville men was regrettable, but also necessary because the white men had feared for their lives. Dr Murray said, quote, We now fired upon them, but it only made them worse. I must, however, state that every means to bring them to a peaceful state had been tried before the firing commenced. Here and there, in his testimony, truer glimpses of what happened shone through. He said that after firing all night, Partner William Scott had gone below and had a pole thrust into his chest, causing a minor wound. Quote, This conduct incensed us, and we continued firing until at last they gave in, and some came forward demanding not to be killed. After that, quote, All that could come were got up on deck. The few that were unwounded were set aside, but the wounded men were thrown overboard. Dr Murray said he'd tried to prevent this, arguing that some of the wounded men might recover if they were left on an island. Quote, But this view was overruled by the crew, who insisted on their being put into the water. Many of the wounds were fatal, but some might have been saved had they been kept on board. Dr Murray explained how the hold had been cleaned and then whitewashed, and that when Rosario's officer came aboard, he'd been none the wiser despite the bullet and boreholes. To Dr Murray, this failed inspection was the key point, the valuable lesson. Quote, This is the most important fact, 
showing how easily an officer can be deceived and how powerless the present means to suppress these frightful abuses. Suppress these frightful abuses that he said had just happened on Carl, the brig he owned, which was manned by a captain and crew that he was paying on a labour recruiting mission that he had conceived and commanded. Dr. Murray would say that after this fearful occurrence, everyone had agreed to sail for Levuka. He and Mr. Scott had gone ashore at Epi. Despite the horrors he'd witnessed and perpetrated, Dr. Murray said his conscience had not been so troubled that he refused to go on a second voyage with the same captain. Over the months that followed, captain and crew again kidnapped 100 or so islanders, shooting at least one of these men and throwing him into the sea. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On Thursday, the 8th of August, the smallpox outbreak was officially over in Sandhurst. Dr. Murray did his final round of the now-deserted sanatorium, locked the doors and gates, and submitted his final report to the mayor. Then he collected £50 of his fee, made his way to Melbourne, and boarded a steamer for Sydney. It had now been nearly a month since he'd first been publicly connected in a Melbourne newspaper with a slave labour voyage. It had been about two weeks since Sydney newspapers had made it plain from his testimony that he was deeply implicated in a horrific massacre. It's hard to believe that no one in Melbourne was aware of this. Yet, he was allowed to leave Victoria. On the 16th of August, when Dr Murray finally reached Sydney, he testified in the Water Police Court committal hearings of Captain Armstrong, First Mate Dowden and other Carl prisoners. His descriptions of the voyages alternated between painting him as someone who was somehow aloof from the terrible events and confessing that he'd been right there in the thick of it. Of capturing men before Carl reached Bougainville on that first voyage, he said, quote, We got them in the same way as the others were got, by the upsetting of the canoes, by dropping pig iron into them. Moments later, though, he dropped the royal we and said that crew members were the ones doing these deeds. Quote, I did not actually see the iron strike a canoe. I did not look over the side of the vessel, but I heard the smashing. Then he reverted, quote, We were about a week or ten days off and on at Bougainville. We were getting natives for four or five days. We got about 80 natives from this island. Back in 1866, when Dr. Murray had been accused of getting drunk before abandoning the Leichhardt recovery expedition, his denials had pointedly included him saying the other men who'd deserted hadn't had that much to drink at all. Commentary then said this was a strategy to absolve them of serious infraction in the expectation that they would repay the favour to him. Dr. Murray wasn't quite doing the same thing here. After all, it was his confession that had landed everyone in court. 
but he still appeared reluctant to single out Captain Armstrong as any worse than anyone else. Perhaps Dr. Murray hoped that his reputation might survive this unpleasantness if the captain didn't go on the record with his story. Describing the start of the massacre, Dr. Murray told the Water Police Court, quote, The natives were fired upon. The fire was directed to the natives under the main hatchway. Guns and revolvers were used. Everybody fired. I'm not sure whether Captain Armstrong fired. I think he was at the wheel. I do not think he fired. As for who ordered the massacre... Well, Dr. Murray certainly didn't, but neither had the captain. No one had. Quote, The firing was carried on voluntarily by the white men. No positive orders were given by anyone. And the same went for the next terrible decision. Quote, The dead natives were thrown overboard. I could not say definitely who gave the directions. The wounded natives were also thrown overboard. I never could ascertain whether positive orders were given for them to be thrown overboard. I think it was done with the general will of the whites. But Dr. Murray was sure of one thing. Quote, I endeavoured to get their lives spared and suggested that they should be put on an island, but the general feeling was against doing that. He said it was a moment of, quote, great excitement and no one appeared to take the lead. The throwing of the wounded overboard was the joint action of all. There was no discussion as to whether the wounded should be thrown overboard. It was a spontaneous movement. As well as remembering that Dr. Murray owned the Carl and was paying all the wages, we should keep it in mind that this man had just spent a month in charge of Victoria's response to the smallpox outbreak at Sandhurst. During that month, he gave the orders and other people obeyed them. Lives depended on it. Yet in his testimony, he was just one voice of many aboard the Carl. Dr. Murray said that when it had been spontaneously decided to throw the men overboard, he removed himself from the immediate vicinity. That was because it was all just too awful. Quote, I went forward that I might not see it done. Ultimately, Dr. Murray did sheet home responsibility to Captain Armstrong, who had, quote, full charge of the ship and the seamen obeyed his orders. Pressed on this, Dr. Murray did agree that Captain Armstrong was, quote, in some degree under my orders. That was in trivial matters. Apart from these trivial matters, responsibility for whatever regrettable things had happened did have to rest with his skipper. Dr. Murray said he'd only lived to tell the tale at all because he'd gone along with it. Quote, I recollect saying before another court that my life had been attempted. I was not always against kidnapping. If I had been, I should not be here now. As for the business partners, Dr. Murray said they hadn't been involved in throwing the men overboard, nor had they a financial stake in the labour recruitment. But he did say they'd been involved in firing into the hold, reloading weapons, upsetting canoes and capturing natives. He said that Harry Mount, William Morris, Raby Wilson and William Scott were, quote, not exactly passengers, they all assisted in the general work. Dr. Murray said that Mr. Scott had remained at Epi. As for the other three, he didn't know where they were. Dr. Murray had been, he said, something of an innocent abroad. Quote, I had no real knowledge of the nature of the business when I entered upon it. He said that he soon found it, quote, the worst of slavery. The massacre was worse still. Yet he'd tell the court, quote, My conscience was not touched on the first voyage, I am sorry to say. He couldn't claim otherwise because he'd embarked on the second voyage. Wrapping up, Dr. Murray said that Consul March had known nothing about the true nature of Carl's voyages, as, quote, he is very much against the labour traffic. 
Of course, Consul March's stupidity, negligence or complicity had allowed 59 captive islanders to be sold into slavery. Dr Murray's vehement support for Consul March could suggest a quid pro quo. I absolve you of guilt, you give me immunity. And just a note on Captain Armstrong. No matter what he said in court, Dr Murray had immunity and was thus untouchable. If Captain Armstrong was to claim he'd been acting under Dr Murray's orders, it would unman him as a man of the sea, and it wouldn't change his chances in court. All the prisoners were remanded to stand trial in November. By now, Dr Murray's reputation was in shreds in Victoria. There was shame that this man had launched the Carl mission from Melbourne. There was shame that this mass murderer had, in ignorance, then been hired as an acting health officer. And there was shame that he'd been allowed to leave the colony a free man. Even further shame was piled on in late September after Dr Murray wrote to Sandhurst Council requesting the outstanding £50 he believed owed to him for his services. As the Bendigo advertiser put it, he reminded them, quote, that he undertook a task of great difficulty and danger at a time when no other medical man could be found willing to perform it. Even though Dr Murray couldn't return to Victoria to press this claim, the Sandhurst Council, in gratitude for his work, voted to pay him the £50. The ever-voluble Dr Murray next wrote back to them on the 11th of October. The Bendigo advertiser, with no exaggeration, said, quote, A more sickening and disgusting tirade of hypocrisy and cant has seldom, if ever, found its way into print. This is part of what Dr Murray wrote. Quote, Gentlemen, with the deepest feelings of gratitude, I acknowledge the receipt of your handsome bonus and testimonials. It is true that I was one of the humble instruments employed by God in stamping out the smallpox in your city and suburbs. But in face of the dreadful opprobrium heaped upon me by the Victorian press, I scarcely dared to hope that any public body could be found willing to deal out to such a one as me a full measure of reward and honour. I cannot help hailing your bold and honest action as the dawn of a happier epoch in my life. For as you have rewarded the faithful servant instead of rashly condemning him and repudiating all his claims to human sympathy, so, by the force of an example approved by the high authority of Christ himself, the world may yet be led to question that justice of an opinion that assumes that I am all bad. Dr Murray said he was a changed man and determined to, quote, repair some of the evils of my past life. He continued, My object from the date of my conversion, towards the close of the Carl's last voyage, has been the suppression of South Sea slavery. And this he underlined, he went on. And my revelations were uncompulsatively made at the sacrifice of name, position, fortune. In short, all that is most dear to man with a view to accomplish this work. So Dr. Murray, an instrument of God, had confessed to save the slaves of the world, and he'd done so at massive personal cost. The Argus was incredulous. It depicted him as a bloodthirsty villain, a sneak and a coward, who had made a small investment in piety and crocodile tears, quote, lifting to heaven hands yet dripping with the blood of the innocent victims of his lust and brutality. It said that after being faced with the choice of appearing in the dock or the witness box, this newborn saint had taken to denouncing a trade which can yield him no further profit. The Argus said that as, quote, 
The gallows has been defrauded of one of its own. The best they could hope for was that Dr. Murray simply dropped off the face of the earth. Quote, At all events, we hope that we shall not be nauseated by any more communications from this murdering moorworm. I had to look up moorworm. It's an intestinal parasite. But moorworm was also a character from the 1769 Bickerstaff play The Hypocrite, who was characterised as a hypocritical pretender to sanctity. So, Dr James Patrick Murray, to a T. The Carl trials were held in Sydney Central Criminal Court on the 19th and 20th of November. The first charges heard were in relation to the second voyage. They were against Captain Armstrong, James Clancy, Solomon McCarthy, William Turner, George Woods, John Bennett, Thomas Shields and Augustus Sheargott. For, on the 20th of February 1872, unlawfully assaulting, beating, wounding and ill-treating an islander man named Jage, who they'd kidnapped. There was a second count against the prisoners on similar charges in relation to another captive whose name was unknown to the court. The Attorney General said this was a case of assault on the high seas commissioned during an illegal labour mission that was, quote, nothing more or less than slave trade in its worst aspect. The judge warned the jury that principal evidence against these men was that given by Dr. Murray, quote, by his own admission, an accomplice, an owner of the vessel, and a planner of the whole of this matter, and he was therefore, if his evidence was to be believed, nothing more or less than guilty of murder. Dr. Murray's confession and Consul March's granting of immunity had placed the Crown and the jury in an extraordinary bind. Without Dr. Murray, the prosecution had no case. By honouring his immunity, he was going to walk free. To convict the men on trial, the jury would have to accept the gist of Dr. Murray's self-serving evidence. Yet, there would be some other testimony to consider. The Islander man Jage had been brought to Sydney and in court he described being kidnapped and held against his will. Through an interpreter, he said in part, quote, I took nuts on board to sell. After I had sold them my nuts and had got my tobacco, they kept me on board. I wanted to go ashore to my friends and I was stopped. They put me down below and made my hands fast. I was kept down there for one night. After that, he was allowed up on deck, but only when Carl was out of sight of land and escape was impossible. Jade identified the captain and several other crew members. Quote, There were plenty of men helping to put me down. The ship took me away onto Fiji. When I came there, I went to work. I was sent to work by the consul. Though the judge warned against placing too much value upon John Bennett's log, it did describe how men had been captured, beaten, fatally shot and thrown into the sea. Despite Mr Bennett chronicling the crimes, Dr Murray's testimony was actually that Mr Bennett and Mr Shields had, quote, both kept aloof from this kind of work. The jury retired for just 25 minutes. Upon its return, they found Mr Bennett and Mr Shields not guilty. The other prisoners were all found guilty as charged and the judge sentenced them to two years. Next, Captain Joseph Armstrong and first mate Charles Dowden were placed in the dock to stand their trial for the murder of an islander man whose name was unknown. While they were facing one charge, which was sufficient to hang them if proved, the Attorney General told the jury that the evidence for this would also lead them to believe, quote, Between 70 and 80 persons had been so murdered. 
Some of the islanders so murdered had, it seemed, been mortally wounded, and whilst so wounded and not yet dead, had been barbarously and most inhumanly thrown overboard. Again, the Attorney General said that this evidence came from Dr Murray, who undoubtedly, quote, well deserved the same punishment now proposed to be given to the prisoners in the dock. But in this case, Dr Murray's evidence would be corroborated by two others who'd been on the first voyage. One was sailor George Heath, who'd participated in the killings and whose evidence, the Attorney General said, also had to be treated with caution. The other was business partner Raby Wilson, whose culpability appeared less, though he had fired into the hold and had also kept quiet about the atrocities until they became public. The jury was also to hear from the officer from the Cossack who'd inspected the Carl at Lavuka and found the hold and bulkhead riddled with holes made by the bullets and by the drill. It was here that Captain Armstrong's authority would come into play. As the Attorney General told the jury, quote, If it should be proved that the captain, even if he had remained at the wheel, was a party to what was done, even if he did not actually fire any of the shots, he would be quite as guilty as any other person on board the Carl that day. The same went for the first mate. Of course, the jury would hear they'd done much more than simply stand by. The Attorney General also impressed upon the jury that the Bougainville natives had had every right to do everything in their power to try to regain their freedom, and that included killing the white men who'd kidnapped them. He said that the law in this case was clear and undeniable. Yet, in this case, quote, the crew fired remorselessly on these poor defenceless savages as they had them cooped up in that dark hold, and that was not all. In the morning, they brought up the dead and the dying on the deck and threw some of those who were not yet dead but were mortally wounded overboard into the sea. The court heard principal testimony from Raby Wilson, George Heath and Dr Murray and much of what they said informed what we heard in part two. No witnesses were called for the defence. Their counsel did not deny that the crimes had been committed as described. His key argument was that the main evidence against his clients was tainted. In England, he said, judges usually directed an acquittal in such cases. The defence counsel said that both of the accused were subordinates to Dr Murray, who was clearly the prime mover in the man-stealing operation. But the defence counsel was on far shakier ground when he tried to argue it hadn't been proven that the prisoners had actually acted illegally in bringing the Bougainville men aboard. Further, he said, if that was the case, then they might have acted in justifiable self-defence in a situation that hadn't been caused by their own wrongdoing. Even shakier was the defence counsel's suggestion that it had been dark, so any identification of the accused could be mistaken. As part of his summing up, the judge warned the jury against being biased by the obvious, quote, greater guilt of Dr Murray or others not before the court. The jury wasn't biased. It took them just 30 minutes to find Captain Armstrong and First Mate Dowden guilty. When Captain Armstrong was asked if he had anything to say in regard to why the sentence of death should not be passed upon him, he remained silent. But when First Mate Dowden was asked the same question, he didn't hold his tongue. But as he went to speak, the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, By some strange coincidence, the bell of the neighbouring church began to toll heavily. As for the dead. When this spooky clanging had stopped, first mate Dowden said, quote, 
Dr. Murray told me to do these things and I did them. It was my place, as I supposed, to obey orders. I am not guilty of murder. These people have come here and have sworn against me as they have, not for the truth's sake, but to make themselves safe. As to Dr. Murray, I have known him read prayers to the crew and then order us to go and smash canoes. I left the business as soon as I possibly could. I hope the court will show me mercy. The judge delivered a blistering tirade. He said that he did believe the evidence that had been given by Dr. Murray, Mr. Heath and Mr. Wilson about, quote, revolting crimes perpetrated by them and by the prisoners, crimes of such a terrible nature as to be hitherto almost unknown to civilised men. The account given by any one of the three persons referred to revealed a mass of treachery, falsehood and cruel wrong, which no honest man could listen to, unmoved or think about without indignation. All of this evil, his honour said, was, quote, something that shocked all sense of civilization. And what was it all done for? For the low and paltry desire of ill-gotten gain. The judge said the prisoners and their accomplices had found a thriving slave market at Lavuka and had decided they would profit from it. His honour said that the supply of stolen men was obtained under the sanction of government and it was hoped that now the government would open its eyes to the nature of these abuses that were being committed under the licence given in its name. His Honour said it pained him deeply that James Patrick Murray, the ringleader of all of these atrocities, the chief mover and instigator of all of these acts, the man who'd employed the two men just convicted of murder, was nevertheless going to escape justice. Having made his impassioned speech, the judge then sentenced Captain Armstrong and first mate Dowden to hang. However, their death sentence would soon be commuted to life in prison, the first three years to be served in irons. Though it was distasteful that they should escape the gallows, it was also regarded as fair. It would have been unfair to hang these two men on evidence given by a far guiltier party who'd walked free. As for James Clancy, he was to be found guilty of murder in February 1873 and he was also sentenced to death, but this would be commuted to 10 years in prison. In Victoria, there was absolute revulsion that Dr Murray was going to get away with his crimes. In an editorial on the 5th of December, the Argus said, quote, for the first time, we imagine, in the history of British law, the accomplices will suffer while the principal murderer goes free. In the face of these failings, there was something the Victorian government could do to ensure that justice, though grievously defrauded, was not entirely robbed of its due. On learning that Mr Mount and Mr Morris were resident in Victoria, both had been approached to give statements supposedly going to be used in the New South Wales trials. It's worth noting that both men maintained in these statements they'd resisted Dr Murray, who had subsequently tried to pin some of the blame on them. Regardless, a few days after the Sydney verdicts, which didn't depend upon their statements at all, Mr Mount and Mr Morris were arrested, charged with murder and committed to stand trial in Melbourne. As the case was about to get started, the Burke Street Waxworks announced that it had a new leading attraction amongst its 300 figures of kings, queens, actors, explorers, giants and dwarfs. Ads in the Melbourne Herald read, quote, Just added, the notorious Dr James Murray, the instigator of the Carl murders and kidnapping. Admission, one shilling. 
Mr. Mount and Mr. Morris appeared from the 19th of December 1872 in Melbourne's Supreme Court. Dr. Murray was not to testify this time. That was because if he entered Victoria, he might only leave via the gallows. Instead, the court heard testimony from Matthias Deviscove, who'd been the cook and steward on the Carl, along with sailor George Heath and the cabin boy James Fallon. Mr. Deviscove and Mr. Fallon had also been arrested for murder, and they were testifying in return for immunity. Similarly, George Heath had confessed to his part in the outrage, and he was also saving his own skin. As we heard in part two, these three men assigned much of the blame for what happened aboard Carl in September 1871 to Dr. Murray. But they weren't being given immunity to exonerate Mr. Mount and Mr. Morris. Mr. Mount was described as having pretended to be a missionary in the first attempt to lure islanders aboard the Carl, a claim he hotly denied. The witnesses also said that he and Mr. Morris had been deeply involved in the brutal kidnapping and had fired into the hold and or helped by reloading weapons. However, Matthias Deviscove said that Mr. Mount had argued for wounded islanders to be put ashore. Raby Wilson's testimony and a later affidavit, details from which we heard in part two, were far more exculpatory. He said that Mr. Mount had repeatedly argued with Dr. Murray that innocent lives be spared. He said that Mr. Mount had objected loudly to the men being thrown overboard and that he'd remonstrated with Dr. Murray over that last and most injurious round of firing carried out by Dr. Murray and the first and second mate through the bulkhead. Raby Wilson also depicted himself, Mr. Mount and Mr. Morris fearing for their lives from a hostile crew and having no choice but to reluctantly participate in some of the lesser crimes. The defence had wanted the trial postponed until the fourth business partner, William Scott, could be located and made to testify. This was not granted. What also went against Mr Mount and Mr Morris was that they at no point had spoken out about what had happened aboard the Carl, Not in Fiji and not on their return to Australia. While the Sydney juries had returned their verdicts quickly, the Melbourne jury took four hours to come to a decision about Mr Mount and Mr Morris. Their verdict? They were not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. This seemed to be a compromise that punished them for their part in the horrors, while also acknowledging that they hadn't been the prime culprits and that the witnesses giving evidence against them were saving their own necks. The judge sentenced Mr Mount and Mr Morris to 15 years penal servitude. But this sentence, penal servitude, was supposed to be accompanied by a directive as to where it would be served. Instead, Mr Mount and Mr Morris were simply put into Pentridge Prison. They appealed on this legal technicality and in September 1873, both men were released while the matter was sent to London for adjudication. By the time a ruling came down confirming that they should actually be put back into Pentridge, Mr Mount and Mr Morris were long gone. Police gazettes from late 1873 found at ancestry.com.au offered descriptions of the fugitives, noting, quote, Both offenders had short hair and were clean-shaven when liberated. They are now said to be wearing wigs and false beards and to be making overland to New South Wales with the intention of leaving the colony by sea. Mr Mount and Mr Morris were never caught. Dr Murray, meanwhile, had also decided to leave the colony by sea. He was last seen in New South Wales on the 20th of January 1873. At least, that was what the Town and Country Journal reported on the 8th of March in an article accompanied by a lithograph portrait of the man. 
The report said it was generally believed that Dr. Murray had gone to England, abandoning his wife and children. That being the case, Town & Country said it now felt free to publish his image. Previously, they had held off, fearing he'd be lynched if it had been widely known what he looked like. The paper concluded, quote, So ends the colonial history of a man whose name will go down to posterity as one of the most vile offenders that ever disgraced the annals of any country. An even more damning opinion appeared in Melbourne's Herald on the 23rd of May, 1873. This one was from a man who'd known Dr James Patrick Murray his whole life. His father, James Murray. Writing from Ireland, Old Man Murray's letter was largely a ramble about his own life and times in Melbourne and New Zealand, in which he denied he'd been a Sinn Féin agitator. But he also sought to set the record straight about his relationship with his son, quote, whom I for years have cut off as a disgrace to creed, country and family. He went on, quote, I fully endorse and add, though opposed to capital punishment on principle, that if any of the Carl crew murderers should ever ascend the gibbet for the kidnapped 70 cruelly slaughtered poor Polynesians, Dr. Murray should be the first. James Murray wanted his son to be hanged. But Dr. Murray wasn't going to hang, nor was he one to ever hang his head in real shame. The Carl case had been covered in the English newspapers. Here's an example from London's Evening Standard on the 24th of January. Quote, The colonial newspapers team with full particulars of the Carl trials. There is but one opinion here, viz. that every man on board should be hanged. The whole story forms a most horrible page of colonial history. It is frightful to think that such monsters should be living in our midst. It is more dreadful still to think that the worst demon of them all, Dr. James Patrick Murray, MD, should be allowed to save his own neck after adding his own comrades to his list of victims. If Dr. Murray did leave New South Wales around the 20th of January, as town and country claimed, then he likely arrived in England around the end of April. So now, the English had the worst demon of all living in their midst. London's The Hour newspaper would report, quote, that he has recently, but unsuccessfully, volunteered to afford valuable information concerning the Pacific slave trade to Her Majesty's government and to the Anti-Slavery Society. But Dr Murray apparently had better luck with Samuel Wilberforce. The son of the famous slave trade abolitionist William Wilberforce, Samuel Wilberforce was the former Bishop of Oxford and considered one of Britain's greatest orators. Today, he's best remembered as the man who argued against the theory of evolution in a public debate with Thomas Huxley. But Samuel Wilberforce was also on the wrong side of history when he lent an ear to Dr. Murray. By July of that year, just months after arriving in England, Dr. Murray had already written a book called On the Polynesian and Fiji Slave Trade, and it was set to be published. His new friend, Samuel Wilberforce, was most eager to read it in manuscript form. He sent a letter to the publisher asking for an advance copy. It was the last thing the great man ever wrote. Samuel Wilberforce's letter was received, according to contemporary British newspaper reports, on the 19th of July, just hours before he died in a horse-riding accident. It's possible that the death of such an influential supporter scuppered the publication plans for Dr Murray's book. 
If it did see print, it's not recorded as such in the British Library. So the world was spared Dr James Patrick Murray as a leading light of the anti-slavery movement. But his medical career didn't seem to suffer, at least at first. From May 1876, Dr Murray was in charge of the Matlock House Hydropathic Establishment in Derbyshire. When he left in August 1878, the Derbyshire Courier published close to two full columns of testimonials from staff, patients, community leaders and clergy. These tributes were signed by hundreds of upstanding citizens. Quote, Speaking of him purely as a physician, we, the undersigned, have every reason to feel grateful for his unvarying kindness, care and solicitude. He earnestly devoted a mind richly stored with varied knowledge to the thorough mastery of each case, and, having done so, he applied the most wholesome, simple and effective remedies. Dr Murray's staff said, quote, we have always found him a most obliging and thoughtful master, and what is more, a good friend in sickness and trouble. The lady superintendent of Matlock House added that he was, quote, as the servants say, a helper of those in trouble and sickness, and the poor man's friend. Why Dr Murray left when he was so popular wasn't recorded. It may have been that the past was catching up with him. The next year, he was struck off the British Medical Register for what he'd done in the South Seas in 1871 and 1872. As a measure of just how real his supposed contrition had been, we can look to his court appeal in August 1879 against this decision. English papers carried a story under the glib headline, A Doctor's Adventures. As reported in the London Globe and elsewhere, Dr Murray's counsel told the court that his client was, quote, possessed of good testimonials as to his professional efficiency. This suggests that Dr Murray, realising the tide had turned against him, quit Matlock House while the going was good and got as many testimonials as possible for this particular purpose. In any event, in court, his lawyer said that he'd been removed from the register because of, quote, an affray in which he was engaged in the New Hebrides. An affray. In this revisionist history, Dr Murray had been harmlessly taking some soundings in a bay when he was attacked by natives and wounded with a poisoned arrow. The London Globe's article, which was reprinted elsewhere, said, quote, In retaliation, they captured several of the natives for which offence they were tried, Dr Murray being accepted as a witness for the Crown. Dr Murray's counsel said during the appeal that this behaviour didn't amount to professional misconduct. Of course, that was true. What had actually happened was far, far worse. The justice, who perhaps had a longer memory than most, refused the appeal, and Dr Murray remained struck off. Whether his medical career ended there isn't clear. A ship's passenger list found at ancestry.com.au records that in 1905, Mr James Murray, aged 65, occupation doctor, birthplace Ireland, then residing in Edinburgh, had sailed from Liverpool on the 22nd of March aboard the SS Haverford, bound for Philadelphia. While there was another Dr James Murray living in Edinburgh at this time, he was nearly 20 years younger. So it's possible that the Dr Murray who arrived in the city of brotherly love on the 4th of April 1905 was the man responsible for the Carl massacre some 35 years earlier. 
What we can say with certainty is that despite the outrage over the Carl slaughter and the hand-wringing that followed about blackbirding, between 1871 and 1904, the trade continued to flourish. As we heard in part one, some 62,000 Pacific Islanders were brought to Queensland, of whom it's estimated 30% died. About one in seven in the colony perished in 1884 alone. As for how many died in the South Seas, aboard ships like the Carl, and on plantations run by men like Henry Ross Lewin and ineffectually regulated by men like Consul Edward March, we don't know. Nor can we know how many other massacres may have been perpetrated. The events of the Carl known only because Dr James Patrick Murray, in a bid to save his own skin, confessed to his atrocities. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The podcast will be back in mid-November. In the meantime, I'll be releasing another bonus episode for Patreon supporters. Of course, supporters can also access the half-dozen bonus shows I've already produced. A big thank you to recent supporters Lauren Stevens, Ruth Williams and Brendan Bruin. To support Forgotten Australia, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. I'd also like to give a big thank you to Desiree Patet-Keating of the Bendigo Regional Archive Centre, who sent through a fascinating story they did recently about that smallpox outbreak at Sandhurst and Dr Murray's role in managing it. It's a really interesting piece for the comparisons that they make between the response then and the response recently to COVID-19, including anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theories. You can read that at www.brac.vic.gov.au forward slash disease hyphen deja hyphen vu. And I've put that link in the show notes too. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and for supporting, and I'll catch you in about a month. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.